pray. Father, we trust you and we depend on you completely. Uh, if there's anything in our life at all, any hint, any sliver, any little portion of our thoughts or our actions that is not fully dependent on you, it is sin. That probably means we're constantly acting out our sin nature as we do so many mundane things day in and day out without ever intentionally putting our trust and dependence on you in those things. So we know that that doesn't condemn us because Christ paid for our sin and it's counted as crushed, it's purchased. And uh, in that life, and in that purchase that Christ has made for us, cause us to be aware of our need for you and to call on you. And Lord, we need you now because we're going to proclaim your word and we desire that it would work for your glory. So we trust you to act, trust your spirit to do that which accords with your will, Father. We pray that you would bless our time in your word, that you would be honored and glorified, that Jesus would be exalted and that the gospel would be magnified through your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've spent the last four weeks exploring the humiliation of Christ, the suffering servant from Isaiah's song in Isaiah 53. There are five stanzas in this song. We've done four. We're on the fifth today, verses 10 through 12. And in the last four stanzas, the first four stanzas, we have explored his suffering, his substitutionary atonement, him bearing our sins. We've explored the extent of our sinfulness and the putridity of our sin nature, or the disgusting, rotting corpseness. That's a word of our sin nature. So to summarize the last 12 verses, uh, we, we are wicked, we deserve death. He took our punishment. He was considered worthless by his people at the time, but we consider him and God considered him worthy to die. They considered him worthy to die for not being God. We consider him worthy to die for being God. He was seen at that time as an ordinary man and his adversaries tried to make his death and his burial ordinary to prove that he's nothing special, that he's not the Messiah. And so, so far in the story of Calvary, as told by Isaiah, Jesus's adversaries are winning. They killed him. They killed the false prophet who claimed to be God. They said to him in Mark 15, 29 through 30, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. But he didn't. He died. They won. They think that because he didn't save himself. So he truly is a false prophet, proven by his death. And if that's how Isaiah's song ends, then it's not much of a prophecy. And certainly not much hope involved. 
This fifth stanza and final stanza of this song reveals three massively important truths. One, this was not only God's will that the son die, but it was God who killed him. Two, and this is a little foreshadowing, he doesn't stay dead. And three, his reward is great and it is also ours. So we'll see those three things unravel in this last stanza as Isaiah beautifully finalizes this song with death and victory and then a final reminder. So verse 10, Isaiah says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, meaning the Father, has put him, son, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. <clears throat> it was the Father's will that the Son die on the cross. I don't think many Christians really deny that. That's why Jesus was sent. Jesus confirms that himself in the garden before his death when in his prayer he says to the Father, your will be done. But the Father's will goes deeper than that. The Father not only willed that the Son died for our sins, but the Father is the one who kills him. This truth is one of those truths in scriptures that, uh, where we have like two coexisting realities that appear inconsistent. Right? The father who can do no wrong and cannot commit evil is the one who kills his perfect son. How is that so? In Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he says to the Jews, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter blames lawless men for the death of Christ. And then in Acts 4, 27 through 28, the apostles are praying to God. And in their prayer, they get even more specific about who is culpable for Jesus' death. They say, or they pray, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, or whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the apostles placed the sin of killing the son on Herod and Pilate and the Jews and even the Gentiles. And in both of those texts, the apostles confirm that this is God's will God's definite plan and that God had predestined it to take place. But when we consider Jesus' prayer in the garden before his death, and when we read Isaiah, and Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We see that it's the Father who is the one who crushed the Son, meaning the Father is the one who killed the Son, But to kill the son is an injustice, and that injustice is sin. God can do no wrong. He cannot sin. So how does God kill the son without he himself performing sin? Well, the same way he does it throughout all of the Bible, repetitively. He ordains 
evil men to perform an evil act in accordance with his will. If God is truly sovereign over all things, then there can be nothing that he's not sovereign over. If there's anything he's not sovereign over, then he's not sovereign at all. The definition of sovereignty requires an absoluteness to that sovereignty. To lack any of it would mean you have none of it. And if he's sovereign over everything, then he's sovereign over even the things that happen in the world that we would say, how can God, I mean, it's a very common uh, philosophical and existential question that people have been asking for thousands and thousands of years. How can a good God allow evil? Or how can a good, loving God allow pain and suffering? Well, Lamentations 3 tells us that he causes these things. And so, what we see in the death of Christ is the sovereignty of God at work to cause evil men to perform evil actions against the perfect Son. And that's required by the Father to do so in order to appease His wrath towards sin. And God has done this before. For example, Babylon. He tells Habakkuk, I raised up this evil nation to send them against evil Israel and for the evil Babylonians to take captive the evil Israelites and then I'm going to punish Babylon for being evil. And Habakkuk's like, what? And God's like, have faith. Like, he doesn't give Habakkuk this long explanation like, well, Habakkuk, you've got to understand, man. I've got this plan where he's just like, I am who I am. I say what I say. And when I say that it is the way it is, that's the way that it is, period. Your responsibility, trust me. That's it. That's how the Father operates. Many times we get explanation or narrative or discourse where we see an explanation for maybe why God is doing things. But oftentimes he tells prophets certain things and their responsibility is to say it. Not question it. And so they're just commanded to believe what he says, have faith in what the Father says, and trust him. And that's what we look at in Scripture. I mean, it's a a reality that I'm very aware of, that people look at texts like this where we see God doing something that we weren't raised being told God does. And we immediately question it. But it's in Scripture. And so we have to find this way to reconcile our view about who God is and what we find in the word of God. Because this is what he says. We don't get to change it or make it suit whatever makes us most comfortable with God. This is what he says. God the Father is the one who caused evil men to kill his son. It was according to his definite plan. It was according to what his hand desired and what his plan had predestined to take place. So the father crushes his son as it was the father's wrath and the father's anger and the father's hatred for sin that needed to be appeased and propitiated. So there's a theological word for you to learn. Propitiation is to satisfy a God. Biblically speaking, as the word propitiation is used in like Romans 3, it is to appease God's wrath and anger towards sin. And that's what Christ does. 
So it was the Father who put the burden of grief and pain and suffering on the Son because it was the Father whose holiness had been offended. So all this talk throughout this whole song has been about the suffering of the servant, about his pain and his anguish of being our sin bearer. And now we come to find out that it was the Father who was putting him through this all along. Now that does not negate the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and faithfulness of God. Not only does it not negate those characteristics of God, but the Father predestining it and making it his definite plan and causing it and ordaining it exalts his love and grace and mercy and faithfulness and forgiveness. The Father's willingness to ordain an injustice against his Son without he himself performing an evil act, but performing that evil through evil agents is the only way in which the Father can secure the Son's substitutionary atonement and thus secure for us eternal life and thus reveal to his elect his love and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness and his forgiveness. And as I just said, it has to be the Father who crushes him. Were the Romans sinned against by Jesus? No. The Jews? No. The Gentiles? No. Pilate? Herod? No. Did Jesus sin against anybody? No. Who has been offended here? Who's been offended in the story? God. When David sins and commits adultery with Bathsheba and then sends Bathsheba's husband to the front line so that he dies and then Nathan confronts David and David is wrecked by his sin, he writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he says very specifically, against you, God, and then he adds this little parenthetical statement, against you, God, you only. Have I sinned? The offense is to God. I mean, you look at that. Did, God, did David sin against Bathsheba? Yeah. Did David sin against Uriah? Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> David sin against Uriah? Yeah. Did David sin against his nation, his, his people? Absolutely. And he says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Because the offense to others is an offense to God. If, if you offend your spouse, you sin against your spouse or a friend or anybody, they, they would look at you and say, I'm offended or you sinned against me. And that may be true and they can feel that and you can recognize and say, yeah, I have sinned against you. And we should ask them for forgiveness. And if they're a believer, they should forgive. But in that offense to that person, their offense is almost meaningless in weight when you compare it to the offense that your sin against them is to God. The offense to them still matters and we still need to deal with it on a relational level, but the real offense is to God. And that's something that David recognizes when he's called out on his sin and that's something we need to see regularly when we examine ourselves or when we're called out on our sin. Our sin is not against other people primarily, it is primarily against God even when it's against other people. And it's important that we understand that because if it's against other people, we could manipulate the situation. You know, oh, you sinned against me. Well, I didn't really mean it. 
Oh, you just misheard me. Oh, you don't understand where I'm coming from. And we can kind of explain it away or make excuses or justify our sin. Oh, I didn't really offend you. But God knows your heart. That person that you offended, they don't know your heart. They could say you sinned against me. You could be like, I didn't mean it like that. And they can't call you out on your heart because they can't see your heart or know your thoughts. But the Lord does. And he knows your sin was offensive. And he knows where your heart and your mind was at when you did that sin. He's the one who's offended. He's the only perfect and holy one. And so it is the Father alone who looks at the sins of his elect people throughout past, present, and future and says, this offends me. I'm the one who's offended. I'm the one whose anger against wrath is most justified and most righteous and most holy and sure to happen. This sin will be paid for because my holiness has been offended by your wickedness, which opposes every part of who I am. And so when Christ goes to the cross and wears your sins on his body, it is the Father who needs to be satisfied. So the Father is the one who brings the justice. It is the Father who crushes the Son. And then the Son experiences what Isaiah calls grief. So when does the Son experience this grief in bearing our sins? Verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for sin. The language of offering for sin was extremely meaningful to any Jew and For them, it immediately brings to mind the sacrificial system that was established by God in the Old Covenant and the law. So what Isaiah is saying in verse 10, that his soul makes an offering for sin, is the same thing that the author of Hebrews is going to say 800 years later in Hebrews 7, 26 through 27 when he writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. When the Son offered up himself, he took upon himself the grief of our sin. And it is a burden that none of us could ever bear. And I know we can't bear it. And I can prove to you that we can't bear it. Because it takes an eternity to bear it. When you bear something, it's something you carry on your shoulders. And you bear that burden to completion. To give up on a burden before completion is sin. It is to succumb to the weight of the temptation to release yourself from burden. But to carry the burden on your back to the finish line of that burden is righteousness. We cannot carry the weight of our sin to a point of completion because it's too great. And that is why when people go to hell, they are there forever. Because there can be no completion to bearing the burden of your sin. That is how great it is. And Christ bore all of our sins. 
we think about ourselves. I mean, think about when you're in grief, right? Maybe you experience grief like trapped in sin or you got some difficult thing going on and this burden feels like it's too much. That's your grief. That's your sin. That's your burden. And you're carrying just, think about how much that weighs on you when it's just you. How hard would it be to carry everyone's? Imagine if you suddenly felt the sin burden of everyone in this room or everyone in Osceola or everyone in Wisconsin or the United States or the whole world. We can't even fathom that. We can barely handle our own. I mean, therapy exists for a reason, and that's it, because people can't bear their own grief, and it's just one person's, your own, and Christ took it all. That should not only encourage us in the gospel, that Jesus bore the grief and sin and burden of all God's elect, but it should also cause us to praise Christ as it exalts the gospel, right? But it should also encourage us in a very pragmatic and practical way. And it should motivate us to obey Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in Romans 13.10, we're told that fulfilling the law is love. So to fulfill the law of Christ is love. So the law of Christ is love. And to bear one another's burdens, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. You are loving. You are taking on yourself something that is not yours to love someone else. That is the gospel. Jesus took your sins and he bears them himself. And that's why Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It means so reveal the power and the love and the beauty of the gospel by being like Christ to other people. Christ bore a burden you can't bear. So now that you have Christ and you have the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, your responsibility is to reveal the gospel by doing the same, bearing the burden for other people that they can't bear. That's why the church exists. That's why unity is so vital. That's why when there's division in the church, people aren't bearing each other's burdens. They're picking on each other instead of helping each other. That's why when there's unity, the camaraderie just starts to grow really fast and heavy and it's very fruitful and everyone can feel it and experience it and they love it and they're like, man, it's just something unique and special and I just love being a part of this body or this church. Something powerful in it because it's not just a unity in the gospel, it's unity revealed in action. That action is we bear each other's sin burdens, we bear each other's life burdens, we come to each other's aid, we pray for one another. We rebuke and we exhort and we reprove in love and in gentleness and in patience. We endure with one another. And we pick each other up off the ground and say, you were never meant to carry this pain or this burden or this grief by yourself. Never. You're not capable. You can't do it. That's what the body is for. Let me be Christ to you today and bear your burden. Let me take on for you something you can't handle yourself and show you what Jesus did on the cross. It's a glimpse of the cross. It's not as powerful as the cross, but it, re but it, it magnifies the cross. And that's the power of it. The power of it isn't in someone going, oh, thank you for helping me. And we get to go, yeah, I feel pretty good about myself. I helped that person today. 
The beauty and the power of bearing one another's burdens is that we get to look at, as we help another person bear their burden, we get to think to ourselves, I can't do this on my own. Only Christ can bear another's burden. So if I'm bearing your burden, that's Christ, not me. I'm worthless. I'm weak. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, in my weakness, his, his power is, made, is manifested. Because in, in my inability to carry your burden just makes two people who both cannot carry your burden. That's all that that is. So my ability to step into your life and bear your burden with you, to encourage you in your sin, to call you out on your sin, to love you, to lead you to righteousness, to, and I could go through a number of various ways in which we carry each other's burdens. Let's say you lose someone you love and you need the family of Christ to come around you. Uh, if, if I come to you without Christ, we're just two worthless, helpless people trying to carry something that we're not strong enough to carry. It's only in the recognition of our weakness that without Christ we are worthless and in Christ he is powerful, then I can come alongside you, then I can help carry your burden and then Christ gets the glory because he's the beginning of that focus. Now, when the suffering servant makes this sacrifice, he accomplishes two things, two truths from verse 10. One, he shall see his offspring, meaning he has secured for himself his church, his bride. His death has purchased his people or his offspring, so he will see his offspring. He has accomplished the task. He has purchased his people. But here's the question. How does he see his offspring? How does he see his people? How does he see his bride if he's dead? Here's the second truth. He shall prolong his days. He shall prolong his days. Well, how can he prolong his days if he's dead? And how can he see his bride if he's dead? How can any of this be accomplished if he's dead? Well, the only way that this can happen is if he doesn't stay dead. I told you before, a little foreshadowing, Jesus rises from the grave, you guys. Isn't that awesome? Did you know that? Well, you know it now. Exciting news. Christ rose from the grave. Now, I, I joke about that because all of you already know that. They didn't know this. Jews reading the Old Testament, reading Isaiah, they didn't know that. You know who else didn't know that? The apostles who also knew Isaiah. Philip, when he explains Isaiah to the Ethiopian, they don't know this. Jesus told them, I'm going to tear down this, temp tear down this temple in three days I'll rebuild it. They're like, what are you talking about? They don't, they don't see the resurrection. They don't get it. They don't understand the fullness of the gospel because the gospel had not been completed. And once it was completed, worship changes completely. And so...
Isaiah's prophecy that the suffering servant's sacrificial death is unlike any other sacrifice is what makes this prophecy unique and then what makes the gospel unique because when Isaiah talks about offering himself, uh, the suffering servant offering himself and the Jews see those words of offering for sin, their mind thinks of the sacrificial system and in the sacrificial system, there's a payment by an animal and the animal dies and the animal stays dead. So that's their understanding of sacrifice. And so when they talk about, when Isaiah talks about the suffering servant sacrificing himself, they look at that and they go, well, he's going to die just like every other animal. Except the difference is when Christ doesn't stay dead. The sacrifices in the law, they needed to be repeated constantly because though blood is spilt to pay for sins, it's only temporary because there remains no life in the sacrifice after the sacrifice. So they need to do it again. But in Jesus' resurrection, he secures an eternal payment for sin by conquering not only sin, but conquering sin's grip, which is death. But that's not all that his resurrection reveals. Isaiah says, it was the will of the, uh, um, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's will was that the Son would pay for our sins. That he take our place and be our substitutionary atonement. That will of God's was fulfilled in Christ, so God's will prospered at the hands of Christ in both his death and in his resurrection. So in the payment for sins and in the prolonging of his days or his resurrection, the will of the Father is satisfied. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, tells us that God worked immense power to raise Christ from the dead, meaning Jesus' resurrection not only secures our eternal life. We would agree that the resurrection of Jesus confirms the death of Christ. It confirms our eternal life. It confirms the gospel. But what else the resurrection of Jesus does for God to raise Christ is God's approval of the Son's sacrifice. Jesus' resurrection is the Father's affirmation that his substitutionary atonement was sufficient to appease and propitiate his anger toward our sin. And that is why verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, because God and his wrath are satisfied. He sees his offspring, Christ does, but only in his resurrection, which happens only because of his anguish on the cross to purchase our life and pay for our sins with his blood. And the result? Satisfaction. The Father's wrath is satisfied by the Son's payment. His anger toward the sin of his elect is appeased and propitiated. And not only is the Father satisfied, but the Son is also satisfied. And it is the Son's satisfaction that Isaiah is talking about 
Not the fathers, but the sons. But the son's satisfaction is absolutely dependent on and predicated on the father's satisfaction. Meaning the son can't be satisfied if the father's not satisfied. So for the son to see and then be satisfied means the father is satisfied, meaning that Christ's resurrection is God's affirmation and God's saying that payment for the sins of my elect satisfies. The Son is sufficient. And that is why he can see and why he can see his offspring and see his body and see his church and see his bride because his death ensured his resurrection and his resurrection approved his sacrificial payment. So how is he satisfied? Well, verse 11 says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Christ, by his knowledge shall Christ make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. In bearing our sins, he secures his bride as his own and makes many counted righteous. So that's what that text means. He makes many who are not righteous become righteous. That's the power of his purchase. That's the power of his blood. That's the power of the death and the resurrection and the substitutionary atonement is it takes unrighteous people and makes them righteous. And, and he, he, he secures his bride as his own and he makes his wedding vow on the cross and he confirms the marriage covenant in his resurrection, making us righteous and satisfying his marriage to his people to be our husband and our Lord, but ensuring the permanence of his marriage to his bride is not his only satisfaction. Ensuring the relationship we have with him is not his only joy. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Well, what was the joy that was set before him? Hebrews 12, 2 also answers that. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the joy. The joy that was secured to Christ is his eternal placement at the right hand of the Father. And according to Psalm 1611, this is a place of perfect joy. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And those pleasures forevermore are Christ's because through him bearing our iniquities on the cross, he has earned the place at the right hand of the Father, and that is the Son's satisfaction. That is the Son's joy. That is what made Christ capable and able to endure death, to take your place on the cross, because he looks through the cross or over the cross or beyond the cross and sees that on the other side is perfect satisfaction and joy. On the other side is a resurrected self in the presence of God the Father, inheriting the fullness of all creation, which the Son did create, to take over everything and to be exalted above every name and every position and every person at the exaltation of Christ and for the glory of the name Jesus, the Son of God, and ultimately for the glory of His Father. That's what Christ sees when He looks at the cross. He sees through the cross to see on the other side this perfect joy and blessing of eternal satisfaction and the presence of, a, of his Father. 
for eternity. And not only that, he doesn't just see himself there, he sees himself there with his bride. Can you imagine if I went to Holly and said, Holly, I'm going on vacation without you. I'm going to, where do you want to go? Bahamas? Too bad, I'm going. (laughs) Like, you just stay home, take care of the kids, I'm going to the Bahamas. She'd be like, no, you're not. (laughs) You think I want to envision myself in the Bahamas without my wife? That was so boring. Now, I don't think Jesus looks at the presence of the Father and thinks, that's boring. But he looks at the, fa- the presence, his presence, beyond the cross with the Father, and he says, it's incomplete without my bride. My body needs to be there. My people need to be there. My offspring need to be there. My, child, my, my, my friends, my brothers need to be there. He need, we, that's part of God's picture. So when Christ looks at the cross and he sees the incredible suffering and burden of bearing the sins of all of God's people, when he, when he looks at that, he can see like transparently through the cross to the other side of the perfect joy and satisfaction in the presence of God the Father with his bride. And he goes, that's worth it. That's worth it. That's worth the suffering. That's worth the cross. That's worth bearing their sins. Not only because I want to be with them forever. Not only because I have a love and compassion for God's chosen people that is far beyond what you and I can imagine. Not only is that true, but Jesus is looking to do one thing and one thing only for his entire life. And that is to fulfill the will of his Father. He just wants to please his Father. That's all he cares about. That's all he cares about. I want to please my father. And the father says, what pleases me is you die for joy with your bride. That's God's plan. That's the father's plan. And the son loves to fulfill the father's plan. So not only does the son get the satisfaction of loving you and spending eternity with you and making you his bride that he gets to cherish and sanctify forever, but he also gets the satisfaction of doing it for his father who will be glorified and who will share that glory eternally with Christ and us. Like, I know you know the gospel. I don't think I'm teaching you things you've never thought about. If you've been a believer for 10, 15, 20 years or even five years, this is like stuff you probably know. But man, do you think how amazing that is? That's so unfair to Christ and God pays him back with eternal glory. And it's so unfair to you because, and me because we should be in hell. And he's like, no, you get to join me. You get to join me in that eternal joy and satisfaction in the presence of God the Father. And we're like, oh, but Jesus, I don't want to go through the cross and suffer the way you suffered and die a terrible death like you're doing. He goes, no, you don't have to. I do that for you. So I'm going to get on the cross take your death, and then bring you to glory. Your job's actually not that hard at all. Now, he tells us in Scripture, doesn't mean there isn't anything hard that gets you to heaven, because if you decide to follow me, if you do believe in me, if you are my child, and you don't have to bear the cross that I bear, which is to pay for your sins, which would send you to hell, I do, however, command you to pick up your cross daily, to bear the burden of following me daily. And that will be hard. 
but it will be nothing compared to what Christ did on the cross. And so it is a small, small sacrifice that we pay every day to follow Jesus, to suffer, to sacrifice things that we want, to follow Christ, to sacrifice relationships, to be obedient, to do the hard things that are required in Scripture for us to do. That's, that's our cross. That's the cross we bear. And it's nothing compared to what Christ bore. And yet we still find ways to complain about the cross that we have to pick up every day. Don't we? It's really easy. It's really easy to find reasons to whine and moan and complain about how hard our life is or what difficult things we're going through. And Christ is like, um, just don't ever forget that the hardest thing is already taken care of. And because of that, I've given you myself who enables you to pick up that cross and bear it anyways. The fact that Christ would look transparently through the suffering of his cross to see joy on the other side and do it anyways is purely love and grace and mercy, faithfulness to his Father, forgiveness for your sins, and then for him to walk us around the cross so we don't have to go through it, but to pick up our cross on the way and carry it throughout this life as a means of sanctification. What, a, what an unfair reality for us. We deserve so much worse. And yet, we don't have to suffer death, but we get the eternal pleasure. That should drastically, drastically affect the way you live your life. Drastically. Like, there's a word that I don't like, and I saw another preacher, Paul Washer, talk about this word. He said he didn't like it, and when he said that, I was like, yes, I feel the same way. Paul Washer nailed it. He's like, I hate the word radical. I hate that word. We call it rad like you should live a radical Christian life. You should be radically following Christ. That's not how the Bible describes Christianity. The Bible describes Christianity as following Christ and then describes it as radical. Look at all of Scripture. How many of the prophets are loved? None. How many of the prophets hide in caves and are naked and eat poo? They do. And, and you know, our, their, their, whole, their lives are miserable. How nice was the apostles' life? That looks like fun. All of them die for Jesus. All of them suffer, are followed and persecuted and killed. How many Christians in Scripture, how many people, how many of God's people in Scripture are seen as like upstanding well-liked by the community, outreach-focused, kind of good old Christians starting up the church and everyone loves that church and they have a great worship team and strobe lights and whatever. I just, like, like, like nowhere in Scripture do we see this version of the church or this version of Christianity that, that we really do see in a lot of places. What we see in Scripture of the Christian life 
is difficulty. Nothing but difficulty. Now, that sounds discouraging, but here's the reality. The Bible is filled with blessings and encouragements. Like Paul says, we're, we're crushed but not defeated. Struck down but not destroyed. Yeah, his life's hard, but he's like, I have victory in Christ. What a great blessing. Life's hard. That's the Christian. I mean, life should be a sacrificial pouring out of yourself to Christ. That's you taking up your cross daily. And, and, and we look, we're looking in the Bible for like, where, where's the, the nice and easy part? I like, like I, I'm feeling a little discouraged today, so I need a bit of encouragement. And we feel like that more often than not. So we're always looking for these positive verses. And we memorize like four or five really positive verses. Like, the Lord will never leave me or forsake me. Well, absolutely, that's true. It's the most repeated promise in Scripture. But we're always looking for the thing that makes us feel better in that moment to kind of help us. And I'm not saying you shouldn't or can't do that. But when we start relying on just a couple of truths, we start making those truths the foundation of our theology. And our theology ends up being bad. Because we don't see the whole scope of Scripture, which tells us a much different story. And the different story in Scripture is your life and following Christ will be difficult. Are there blessings in that difficulty? Absolutely. Are there promises for you in the difficulty? And those promises are joyful blessings? Absolutely. But tell the apostles that the Christian life should be easy. Tell the prophets that following God should be easy. Tell Elijah as he stands on the mountain and faces all the prophets of Baal and is ridiculed and stands firm and stands strong and calls down fire from God and he consumes the altar, kill the false prophets, and then he gets a letter from Jezebel, I'm coming after you. He's like, no, and he hides in a cave. Like, great courage at times, and then it's like, man, the reality of following God is costly and it hurts and it's hard, and that's impossible for us to endure with out Christ. Amen. So your constant encouragement and blessing in every day is though taking up your cross is painful, the beauty of it is that that cross, that cross is already stained with blood. That cross already bore the perfect Savior. We already walk in a new person, in the newness of Flesh, we walk in, in, in Christ with the power of Christ running through our veins, coursing through our lives. We are conquerors in Christ. He conquered, it's our victory. We carry that victory daily over and in everything that we do. And we need that encouragement and we need that reality because the things that we do are hard. And the world's going to hate them. And there'll be people in the church who are false Christians who will hate it. And then there'll be even people in the church who are Christians who will be in their sin for a moment and hate it. That happens. And then you'll start hating yourself. Because it's hard to do the right thing and then you kind of just give up your conviction and you go, you know what, it's just easier to do what everyone else is doing. And Jesus goes, can you imagine if I thought that? 
you'd still be in hell. The Christian life is made for endurance. Nowhere in Scripture are we, the whole story of Scripture is, this is a hard following. And you can't do it. You're not good enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not strong enough. You are weak. That is the story of Scripture. But it doesn't end there because it finishes with, but Christ in you is strong. So don't boast in your strength to get through it. Boast in your weakness. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Because in your weakness, then Christ shows his power through you. That's what we call humility. That's why Christ looks beautiful. That's why Philippians chapter 2 is one of the most beautiful texts in the entire Bible. To, to, the way that it tells the story of Christ. and the, It's like the Christmas story and the gospel and his death and resurrection all and eternity all wrapped up in just a few verses that he went from being in the presence of God to becoming a human being, being born in the likeness of man, and then not only being a man, but think about what that's like. This God himself needing to be fed by his mother, needing to be taken care of by another human being whom he created, and then becoming a man and growing in wisdom, and then dying the most humiliating death. Do you realize that the crucifixion only happened in a very short period of time? That these prophecies about the cross hundreds of years earlier had no, con- they had no concept of a cross back then. And yet these prophecies talk about the cross and him dying on a tree. And so Jesus has to be born in this time when the Romans uh, implement crucifixion as the most gruesome and disgusting and terrible way to die to show other people that the Romans mean business and Christ dies on the cross, the most humiliating form of death. So he goes from the presence of God the Father to the humiliation of becoming flesh, humiliation of needing other humans, the humiliation of being hated by the world, and then the humiliation of dying on a cross, the most gruesome, humiliating death. And then he's buried, which is humiliating. And that was required, his absolute humiliation down to nothing. He becomes worthless. Until he rises from the grave, revealing that he's not worthless. He's worthy. And in the power of his resurrection, his name gets exalted above all names and every name. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That is going to be like, that is such a mind blowing reality. All the people in the world who don't believe in him. Or, or the people that I know who say they believe in him, but they don't like live for him. Or myself, I know what I believe, but my goodness, my life, just, it's just a, such a struggle. I know your struggle. It's a struggle to just live for him. And I think about the fact that scripture tells me every knee will bow and every tongue confess on earth or under earth or in the heavens, wherever, everybody, anybody, whether believer or non-believer, every knee will bow and every tongue confess he is the Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Christ still satisfies the Father. When you add all that up, 
Even when you add up the, the, the difficulty of following Christ and the burden, the daily constant burden of carrying your cross, a cross that already bore his death, so you don't have to. We think about how hard the Christian life is. When you consider all that, And then James says, count it all joy. How can you say that? How can he say, count that all joy? Have you ever lost someone you loved? Have you ever been so wrecked by your own sin that you like, can't get out of bed? Have you ever had a physical ailment that ruins your entire life, changes the way you function? Have you ever tried to raise kids? <laughs> Have you ever tried to be a good husband or a good wife or a good church member or good at your job or please your boss or have good relationships with your friends? Try not to offend people. Try not to be offended. You ever tried to live life? It's hard. And on top of that, i got to follow Jesus and everyone hates it. And the Bible promises me that it's going to require sacrifice and that sacrifice is going to cost me and that cost is going to hurt and i got to do it anyways and I have to endure that hardship anyways. And then James says, count it joy? How? Christ! That's how! That's how! Jesus is how! Because he's like, that's all you have to go through is to pick up the cross and carry it to the end of your days. You don't have to die on it. Jesus did. You don't have to die. Like, that's, that's the key. That's, the, that's where the joy comes from. Another way to kind of say what James is saying when he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, is what he's saying is, if this trial, no matter how bad it is, this is the worst your life or eternity could ever be because you have Christ. This is your hell. So count it joy because what's the worst they can do to you? Kill you? Good! I want to die. That's what Paul says. To be present with Christ is way better than to be here on earth. And But if God wants to leave me here, great! Then I preach Christ. Either way, it's Christ. Either way, my trials, I still have Christ. At the end of the trial, I still get Christ. If they kill me, I get Christ. If they don't kill me, I preach Christ. What? They can't take that away from me. They can't take that away from you. Doesn't matter how hard your life is. You get Christ. You have Christ. Joy. Like, that's the, that's the joy. It's like you have to pick up this cross. And it's like, oh, this one's heavy today. Woo! I don't think we're going to make it. And God's like, count it joy. It's joy because that cross you're carrying today is a cross you're not dying on today. You're welcome. Amen. Which is why I tell my kids, and I know I've said this many times from the pulpit, obedience without joy is still disobedience. I try to urge in my children not just to do what I say, but to do it with the right attitude. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> like I said, ever try parenting? That's hard, right? It's hard for me to do it. And I'm the one saying it to them. Now, 
Isaiah ends this in verse 12 by telling us that we share in the portion of glory that Christ has earned. He says, therefore, I will divide him, that's Christ, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's our hope and that's our confidence that our eternal reward is earned by Christ and secured by Christ and insured by Christ and that we are called the strong, not because we're strong, but because he's strong in us. Like I said, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So though this is a beautifully glorious ending to a long five stanza Awesome song about the suffering servant. He ends it with the resurrection, the prolonging of days, the victory. It's like four stanzas of, ooh, this is rough. And then the fifth stanza is like, but he lives! Yay! But Isaiah doesn't just leave it there. He ends with that, but then brings us back to this one last reminder in verse 12. By ending with the song with these words about why, why, we are eternally secured by this suffering servant. Why his resurrection is so important. Why we have this victory. Why his days are prolonged. Why we are his bride. Why we're counted as his people. Verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. There is no greater injustice and there is no greater love joy and grace that the perfect son would suffer the eternal weight of God's wrath in only a few hours to provide us with that which we do not deserve. Jesus confirms that this is him in Luke twenty two thirty seven, where he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. That's Christ saying, I'm the one. He himself is not the transgressor, but he was numbered with the transgressors. And he was accounted to God as one who carries the sins of the world. And because he endures the fullness of God's hatred and wrath for sin, he earned his eternal joy and his eternal placement in the presence of God the Father. And because he did it for us, we also will eternally share in his glory. But he doesn't just end with the victory. He ends in verse 12 with the reminder that he was numbered with the transgressors, that he died, that he bore our sins, and that he makes intercession. Why? To remind us what we've been saying for the last five weeks, to keep the main thing the main thing. The perfect lamb, the perfect servant, suffered our consequences, died for your sins, That's the main thing. And we should always seek to keep it the main thing. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We don't deserve your grace and your goodness, but you are good anyways. Just pray for your people that they would be blessed this week as we pursue following you. We know it will cost us. We pray that as it costs us, we will find incredible joy in the gospel. Let that joy be our strength. As your word says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let that joy carry us day by day as we carry our cross. And we thank you for yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.